Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. Whether you're into food, nature, culture, sports, immerse yourself in the things that you love on your next vacation. For example, you could check out the Sherlock Holmes tour in London. You could take a pasta making class in Rome, experience the San Diego whale and dolphin watching cruise, or go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. They've got a night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, a New York City street art and graffiti tour. They've even got a Chicago river cruise and architecture tour. Uh, I have to stress that my family went on one of these uh, architecture boat tours of Chicago, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you want to turn to get your guide for. Whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And on today's episode of Weird House Cinema, we are going to be talking about the 1986 sci-fi creature feature, Critters. I was going to say it's our first example from the Gromlins subgenre, but it is not. We've actually talked, we we did Gremlins 2 last year, though we haven't done Gremlins 1. And uh, also, I think you you covered a a sort of Gromlins adjacent movie while I was out last year. Yeah, uh, my friend David Streepy came on the show and we talked about The Gate which, uh, as we'll discuss here, is Gromlin-esque without being like a, like a hard Gromlin or, um, <laughs> or direct Gromlin feature. Well, Rob, if it's okay with you, I thought maybe we should start this episode by laying out a sort of filmographic timeline of the Gromlin subgenre or what you might also call like tiny monster movies or small creature features. These were very popular in American cinema in the 1980s. And maybe by kind of laying them out in order, we can help get at what these films mean. Yeah, yeah, because uh, we, yeah, Gromlins are always fascinating, like to, trying to figure out like how they work, why they work, you know, why Gremlins spawn so many imitators and, and not just imitators, but also as with this movie, I think legitimate uh, clearly had an influence on films that had their own ideas and had something different to offer, but still delivers on that same energy and rides that Gromlin wave. 
That's right. Okay, so the first big one is Gremlins 1984. This is the Mac Daddy. Uh, We covered Gremlins 2 already, as I said, but not the original. So the Gremlins are small monsters that are spawned as a result of improper pet care. So they begin as a cute, friendly, fuzzy little guy called a Mogwai. And the Mogwai is great. He's a good buddy. But you absolutely positively cannot get him wet. And unfortunately, the humans in the movie spill some water on their Mogwai, spawning other creatures like him. They kind of pop off of his back. Uh, But they're not exactly like him. They're not nice. They're mean. And these creatures are made even worse when another rule is violated and they are fed after midnight, which the characters are told not to do. That transforms the the mean Mogwai from uh, just little trickster type things into doll sized scaly reptilian chaos demons that exist to mock and destroy all systems of order and organization, including human life itself. <laughs> but as we talked about in our feature on Gremlins 2, The gremlins do kill people in these movies, yes, but what makes them special as monsters is that killing people is not their main goal. It's just one small part of their broader uh, raison d'etre, which is to make a mess. Gremlins exist to make a mess. They are chaos embodied, and this goes back to their origin in folklore from before the film, the, the standard idea of where gremlins came from is that uh, like British RAF pilots in World War II would blame engine malfunctions on gremlins. They imagine little monsters that would get into the engines of the aircraft and chew through wires, disconnect things and cause malfunctions. Yeah. And in general, I would say the the, the folkloric roots of the, the gremlin or the, the, the basic gremlin is, yeah, any kind of diminutive trickster being. Uh, so there's a whole host of things that you can hold up to to the light as being in the same vein. So I think like the basic, that's one of the reasons Gremlins connects so well with an audience when it comes out is because this is not something we haven't seen before to some degree in say cartoons. It's not mm-hmm. something out of keeping with folkloric traditions. And so we instantly latch onto it. I would argue the other thing that really helps with Gremlins and the more successful Gremlins imitators, even the bad ones, um, is that there is a handcrafted puppet quality yes. to a true gremlin where you can you know it's a puppet you know it's an artificial being that's being brought to life via you know generally some sort of puppeteering and that adds to the effect and also makes the scares a little safer and it creates this special energy that is very consumable by a mass audience I think that's a very astute observation, and I want to come back to that when when we talk about the appeal of these movies. Okay, but so Gremlins is the first one. That's 84. The mm-hmm. second main one that most people recognize is Ghoulies, which came out either in 84 or 85. I've seen both years cited for its release, maybe in different markets. I don't know. Uh, it does seem to have come after Gremlins because multiple reviews at the time call it a Gremlins ripoff. However, it seems these two movies were in development at the same time. So I, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I think it it appears that Ghoulies was not just like looking at the success of Gremlins and saying, let's do something like that. We will have to watch a Ghoulies movie someday. Ghoulies, if you're not familiar, um, and, and if you're not familiar, it's almost hard for me to believe because uh, having grown up as a child in the 80s, um, 
going to VHS and later DVD rental stores, but especially VHS rental stores, and seeing the box art and or posters for Ghoulies, it was horrifying because the, the, the VHS box art promises one thing. Ghoulies will crawl up through the toilet and, and bite you on the butt. Uh, they are that that is the threat that is uh, that is pr- promised on the VHS. I'm not saying the movie completely delivers on that concept, but this is just indetachable from the franchise. The the main box art is a green, bald, ghouly creature wearing, I don't know, like red suspenders <laughs> and a blue T-shirt. I don't know what this outfit means. Yeah. Uh, but it's this green, bald creature with sharp teeth popping up out of a toilet bowl with its hands on the seat. And the tagline is, they'll get you in the end. Oh, By which well. they mean the butt. Yeah. 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 So horrifying as, as, as a kid. Because no, yeah, this is not what you want when you go to the bathroom. Not at all. Though. So it's been many years since I saw Ghoulies. I have only the vaguest memories about it. But I recall this not actually being a thing that happens in the movie. Am I right about that? I think you're right. My memory, too, is kind of an amalgam of different bits from Ghoulies movies I watched on, like, late-night cable television. I think it might not have been a thing in the first film and or it might have been like, oh, God, we put a ghoulie coming out of a toilet on the, 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 the VHS art. Let's throw in a scene. It might have been something like that. Uh, I think by the second film, they're definitely making sure they get some some toilet humor in there. Well, the general idea is that this is also a movie with small monsters running around a house killing people. But rather than being an improper pet care situation gone awry, the small monsters in Ghoulies are servants of the devil. They are right. summoned by an occult ritual to do the bidding of a malevolent satanic sorcerer. Yes, they're they're demons for sure. Which certainly seems like a more evil and adult kind of spin on the the small monsters idea than in Gremlins. Yeah, because Gremlins, they're yeah, they're pets. They're vaguely some sort of um, creature out of uh, Chinese fantasy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this time servants of the devil, yeah, you have to take that a lot more seriously because you know that they're, they're underlings for something else, something worse. Okay. The next big Gromlins movie on the timeline is the one we're talking about today. Critters from 1986. How is this one different? Well, the small monsters here are not, uh, not little chaos goblins from, uh, you know, that, that sound like something out of a folktale with little pet care rules. They're also not servants of Satan. They are science fiction alien fugitives from an asteroid prison, and they are here to eat. Their main quality, uh, the main quality possessed by the Krites, as they are called in the film, is that they are hungry and they will eat anything and anyone. That's right. And uh, I would describe them as being uh, kind of little round guys, kind of in the vibe of a cartoon porcupine, but then with just a shark's mouth of teeth, uh, ruby red eyes. Uh, but they still have that they still have attitude. They have uh, they have that kind of gremlins energy where they they they're hungry. They're mainly here to eat, but they're up for a little mischief as well. They're little humanoid hedgehogs that shoot poison quills and have uh, at least three rows of little thorn-like teeth. Uh, yeah, and mean, nasty eyes. And, and they're like, they're vindictive. They're mean. Yeah. yeah, but a little bit cute. A little bit cute. A little bit cute, too, yeah. Now, the poster art for this one is also pretty incredible. I remember this one from the video stores of old because you have this wonderful illustration uh, of a krite. Uh, and I don't know if it's a 100% accurate representation of what they look like in the film, but it captures the energy. It captures the mischief in hunger. 
I agree. So when you showed me this picture, uh, the, the poster before we uh, watched the movie, I was thinking, oh, wow, this is one of those great things where the monster on the box art is fully revealed and it looks awesome and it's somewhat misleading. Like it looks a lot mm-hmm. different than it does in the movie. Actually, once I watched the movie, I was like, eh, it's not as misleading as I first thought. It's it's basically on track. You know, the eyes are a different color and stuff. But there is some kind of energy that's different. The, this monster is just kind of classier looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like he needs a little suit or something. Yeah. Also, when you shared the poster with me in chat, it it uh, cropped it so that the title at the bottom was just Ritter. Mm-hmm. Ritter versus Critter is uh, was uh, was one of the great missed opportunities of this uh, this franchise. Oh yeah, problem child with critters. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but that gets us up to 1986. It did not stop there. And by the way, we're not noting these, but there are sequels popping up as we go along, too. So you're going to also get Gremlins 2, Ghoulies 2, Ghoulies 3, uh, Critters 2, and so forth. Uh, But in 1987, we get Munchies. This one is produced (laughs) by our old pal Roger Corman. Allegedly, he was like, hey, you know, these Gremlin ripoffs, they're making money. Let's do one. (laughs) Yeah, these other films, as we'll we'll discuss with Critters as well, you know, they're alternate uh, takes on it where they're like well this this was already an idea and we just tweaked it a little bit but this is corman you know what's up here yeah he's like let's do a gremlins clone uh so uh, munchies was directed by tina hirsch uh the plot concerns a man who brings a creature that he finds in a cave in peru back to the united states mm-hmm. and the problem seems to come when someone tries to chop the creature in half and it just turns into two creatures and so on and so on so it's like it's like gremlins meets the legend of the hydra yeah yeah and i've never seen this one um but the box art is familiar to me because you basically have what looks like a cross between a gremlin and one of those trolls with the spiky hair uh treasure trolls yeah yeah it looks like a treasure troll and a gremlin had a baby and then that baby took up drinking beer and smoking cigarettes Yes. And it's a pervert. That's the main thing you need to understand from the poster is it's like pervin' on ladies. Yeah. I don't know if they, I mean, I assume this happens in the movie. Who knows? But that's what they're selling. It's like, were, were the gremlins too tame for you? Do you want raunchier gremlins? <laughs> well, then meet the munchies. So I've never seen munchies either, but I found a screenshot. And Rob, is it just me or are the munchies dressed like the bounty hunters in Critters? Kind of. They have some sort of a weird futuristic doll clothing on don't they yeah similar color scheme that kind of underlying uh uh, sort of red brown clay color and then like the black stuff on top i don't know it looks similar to me looks like the puppetry has slid a bit from our this the the titles we've discussed already and is moving closer to the title that we're going to discuss next the next movie from 1988 is Hobgoblins, famous <laughs> from Mystery Science Theater 3000. The origin of the monsters here is that they crash landed from space and then they were kept locked in a vault in a movie studio for decades. Now they have escaped. Uh, so it's aliens again. This one feels more like it is ripped from the plot of Critters, aliens crashing on Earth. Hobgoblins is, of course, terrific. Just a terrific film. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's a per- one of the great episodes of, of MST3K. It's a perfect film for riffing on, though it also inherently has its own built-in campiness and intentional humor, some of which lands, some of it falls fantastically flat. But when it does fall flat, it lands in such a way that it can then be riffed upon and enjoyed. I haven't watched this one in a while either, but I, I remember 
it having a great quality of scenes that go on way too long and become mm-hmm. very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get all sorts of cool stuff. You get clubs, uh, what, club scum? I think they go to club scum in that, yeah. Mm. Okay, so that's just a selection of the main ones that came to my mind. I think those are the main franchises you're going to get, or like uh, Ghoulies, Critters, and and Gremlins. But there are some other like one-offs in between there, in addition to all the sequels. So there were a lot of these movies, and they made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can kind of divide them up. I kind of divide them up into thinking about like direct Gromlins and indirect Gromlins. So the direct ones are going to be pretty much the films we've already listed. Ghoulies, Munchies, Hobgoblins. You know, easy to point out and say, hey, if I liked Gremlins, I might like that, uh, <laughs> etc. But uh, indirect Gromlins are going to be situations where you have things in common with Gremlins and they're still likely to be cash-ins to some degree. If not creative cash-ins, then in many of these cases, it's like clearly somebody uh, with the money to finance said, well, this is a great idea because we know these sorts of films actually sell. Um, but you may have different things going on. For instance, you might have the effects leaning more into monster suits as opposed to shrieking puppets. Um, uh, and you also might see greater originality in some cases. So, for example, the troll movies are sometimes mentioned as being <laughs> Gremlins ripoffs. Um, and, you know, I don't know that I've ever watched the first troll all the way through, but we talked about Troll 2 on here. Uh-huh. Troll 2 definitely has gremlin energy going on. Mm. But the creatures are not cre- brought to life in such a way. The creatures are clearly people in costumes uh, that actually comes off more threatening because the costumes are so bad. I agree in a way. I don't know if I would put Troll 2 in the Gromlins category because, like, the the, the trolls um, or the goblins. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're goblins, not trolls. Yeah, they're they're people in suits. Like they're not the like the doll sized creatures running around, uh, you know, ca- causing mayhem like that. And they've got a different mo. They uh, they're not as mischievous, you know, as mm-hmm. the creatures in all the Gromlins movies are. They just want to turn you into plant matter and eat you. Another film that comes to mind is uh, 1985's Cat's Eye which was, of mm. course, a horror anthology film based on works by Stephen King. And the title uh, story in it concerns a little troll creature who is come, it comes out of the, the, the hole in the wall to, to suck out a child's breath at night while they sleep. And uh, cats are, of course, blamed for it, but the, the cat is like one of the direct lines of defense against said troll. Yeah, the cat has to save the day. I, I saw that movie when I was way too young to see it, and it scared me. Yeah, it's it's a scary looking creature. I think this one they, they mostly did with uh, with a costume though, but with really awesome gigantic sets. So uh, the effects I think are really admirable here. Okay, another thing that's notable in the Gromlin space, while it's not a movie, is I think best seen as part of the cultural phenomenon of Gromlins, and that would be Boglins, released mm. in 1987, a popular line of monster-themed hand puppets for kids. Uh, you turn your hand into a goblin. Uh, Rob, did you have Boglins, or do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I definitely know what you're talking about. I never had one. Uh, but I wanted one at the time. These were created by Tim Clark, who also worked on the Dark Crystal and Fraggle Rock and the Creature and Muppet design um, areas. Uh, for instance, he was on the, the the team that created the Mystics for the Dark Crystal. Mm. And um, he, I, I think I follow him on Instagram because he, um, he he's, he's brought Boglins back. They recreated them, new materials and new designs for a new generation. I would totally buy one 
if it were the kind of thing that my son enjoyed at all. But I would just be buying it for me, which feels uh, which which I, I don't feel strongly enough to do. Rob, you can buy it for you. It's okay. I, could, I, you I know, give you permission. I only have so much room for um, fake monsters in the house, you know, and um, it's just I'm going to have to let somebody else buy that boglin and love it. Well, anyway, with this whole tiny monsters phenomenon, the gr- the Gromlins craze, I started thinking, why was this a why was this such a thing at the time and place it was? Why did groups of tiny rampaging monsters with mischievous personalities become such a phenomenon in American movies in the mid 1980s? Like what about this theme resonated? I think I don't know this this is still kind of uh, only half formed in my mind, but I think there is something significant in the fact that these monsters are, in their very essence, like toys. Somehow they are already merchandise marketed to kids in their original form, but they're dangerous and pretty close to R-rated. So there's a kind of ambiguity about the intended audience of a number of these movies, the original Gremlins. I don't know if so much for Ghoulies, but the original Gremlins and Critters, these are movies that, on one hand, if you watch them, you'd say, well, I guess this is supposed to be a regular horror movie for adults only because, you know, they're pretty violent and they have some adult themes. But they're also on the tamer end of adult horror movies and they have elements that seem like maybe they're supposed to appeal to kids like the fact that the monsters are little makes them seem kind of cute in a way even the ones that are more ugly and in some cases these monsters explicitly have cute avatars a la the mogwai in gremlins or critters also are they're somewhere between scary and cute they are a little bit cute yeah And I wonder if this led to it seeming like kids could maybe be allowed to watch these movies. Like Critters is PG-13. It's not rated R, but it's a rough PG-13. And uh, of course, a lot of kids, you know, they love monsters. They love if the parents will let them watch a, a scary, bloody monster movie, they'll be into it. So maybe something about the ability of these movies to defy marketing and content restriction pipelines and end up in front of audiences that were technically too young for them was part of the success. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, just just looking back on my own childhood, it seemed like a time when yeah, more kids were watching films without a lot of uh, parental supervision. Um, and so there was more room for films like this to sort of be gateways into um, other franchises of horror. And I don't know, I guess it, it's kind of weird, though, to think about them, because on one hand, like you're saying, they're they're not they're not like Disney family films like you would rent during this time period. But they're not like really really hard horror with like really strong adult themes they are this kind of like transitional place where kids could watch it and feel like they're breaking the rules a little bit but Mm -hmm. at the same time like a a parental unit might watch this and see think like well it's fine it's fine it's not too bad yeah another possible part of the appeal i i was talking uh, to rachel about this and we were wondering if Maybe the movies are appealing to adults because the monsters are, in some sense, kids. (laughs) So we were talking about whether it's possible that, like, maybe a certain generation of filmmakers and audiences were all having kids around around the same time. And of course, you know, we love our kids, but there is sometimes a great temptation to imagine our children 
in their more destructive moods as rampaging little monsters that have gotten loose in your house. And I can see how that could be part of the appeal. But of course, earlier generations of filmmakers and audiences would have been having similar experiences, becoming parents and watching their children unleash a flood of chaos through the home. So that still does leave us back with the question of like, what was so special about this theme in the mid 1980s? Yeah, I like I say, I think part of it is materials. Um, it's it's the, the the fact that they had to lean on puppetry and the puppetry and the and the creature effects uh, of, of other uh, forms. They had to be pretty darn good, even in these cases where uh, where we may laugh at the execution, like hobgoblins. I mean, still the hobgoblins look pretty good. Uh, <laughs> maybe not on the same level as critters, much less gremlins too, uh, gremlins, mm-hmm. but they still look pretty good. You can buy into them. And part of that is just the sublime magic of puppetry as a storytelling medium. A puppet does not have to look 100% lifelike because the puppeteer breathes life into it. And that's where the magic happens. I think that's a very good point, though, of course, you cite the example of Gremlins, too, which has amazing puppetry, but also goes well beyond puppetry into, yes. I don't know, whatever they were doing with electricity Gremlin. I think that was like animation on film or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of these other like uh, the gate comes to, to mind, like there are little demon creatures running around in there and they use multiple different uh, forms of special effects to bring those to life, including stop motion stop motion, but also yeah. people in suits um, and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's, it's going to vary. You're going to end up, even in this one, there are cases where it's puppetry and there are cases where it's clearly like a ball of fur that, <laughs> that people off, off screen are rolling across, uh, uh, across the, the set. Yeah, I think you might really be onto something about that with the, with the effects that like the, the tactile nature and size of the effects. And also that that may connect in a way to what I was saying a minute ago about the, the fact that these monsters are already in their original form. So similar to toys, which might have some kind of like merchandising appeal or something. This movie actually touches on one possible connection and that is ET. Um, Mm, yeah, this film features one of those. And I definitely remember these from my childhood. I never had one, but it's like this kind of like Naga hide sort of ET plush, uh, that was very weird because yeah, it's not completely huggable. Like it's not soft. It doesn't have fur. Uh, and it's based on ET, which I was thinking about, uh, watching this film. It's like ET is of course a classic film, very influential, uh, you know, we wouldn't have works like pod people without it. But on the other hand, it seems like the creature design is one of the limiting factors of E.T. because E.T. is just ugly. E.T. is not yeah. cuddly. And you have to like they did a great job creating even a, a like an acceptable stuffy based on him. Uh, but, yeah, you, you can't help but wonder what well, would E.T be even have been even more successful would it kind of like have have even more lasting influence if the creature had looked differently i i think part of the beauty of et is the the idea that you have to see past what et looks like that you Mm -hmm. get to know that this is a this is a friendly benevolent creature and when you get to know his personality et becomes beautiful but he's not like when you just look at him he's not cuddly looking no he looks like a coat rack (laughs) a coat rack made out of uh like naked flesh he also kind of looks like a like a stalagmite in a way. Yeah, yeah, he does. Oh, but yeah, you were you were mentioning there's a scene with an ET toy in the movie, and uh, the the critter 
or the crite is trying to like communicate with it. It's like mm-hmm. booping it, being like, hey, what's <laughs> yeah. up, buddy? But the, the ET does not talk back. So the crite becomes uh, annoyed and I think just bites its head off. Yeah, yeah, just bites into it. All right, Joe, what's your elevator pitch for this one? Well, you probably already know by this point, uh, but basically furry little creatures, which are also vindictive, sentient fugitives from space jail, land in a sleepy Midwest farm village and begin to eat everything in sight. And it is up to two alien bounty hunters and a brave young pyromaniac to stop them. All right, let's listen to that trailer audio. Of all the planets in the galaxy, they chose ours. They hide in small places. This phone is dead. What? They light the dark. Jay, any luck? Just a minute. There's nothing cute about them. They've come a long way. And they're hungry. If you want to go watch Critters for yourself, well, it's widely available. And currently, as of this recording, streaming along with only Critters 3 on Max. I don't know what David Zaslav has against Critters 2 and Critters 4, uh, but I don't think they are streaming alongside Critters 1 and Critters 3. Max. Uh, yeah, yeah, Max. Max, what, Max. what are you doing? But if uh, but they're out there somewhere, they're not unavailable. And there is also an excellent looking Critters Collection Blu-ray box set, which features Critters 1 through 4 with extras. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. 
Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human-moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. All right, let's get into the people involved here. The director and one of the screenwriters on this is Stephen Herrick, born 1958, accomplished mainstream Texan-born director who launched his career with this film in 1986. He followed it up. What with, a debut! <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I mean, I think it's a it's a well executed film. Yeah, um, and it's very watchable, very enjoyable. Uh, so it, it's not a bad way to start off at all. I'm not fully being ironic when I say I can see the line from Critters to Mr. Holland's opus. Yes, because, <laughs> yeah, he goes on to do a number of films that I would just roughly describe as feel good. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of feel good elements in this uh, particular film, and you can totally see that being something that he, you know, he took up and ran with and made a career out of because uh, they absolutely work. And the, the the score also goes along with it. The score is great at times in ways that I really like. Other times it has that kind of comedy energy where it's like this summer. <laughs> are do, you ready do, do. for the adventure yeah. of a lifetime? <laughs> the critters are on the move. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But anyway, more on the score in a minute. Anyway, yeah, he, he followed this movie up with 89's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Ooh. Uh, and did especially well for himself in the 90s, directing stuff like The Mighty Ducks in 92. The Three Musketeers in 93, which was very 90s, but also had tremendous cast. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Holland's Opus, like you said, in 95. 101 Dalmatians in 96. His subsequent work includes a lot of mainstream television, uh, two Dolly Parton specials, as well as the 2023 movie Dog Gone, which I think is a movie about a lost dog. Oh, no. Well, I hope they get the dog back. Oh, you know they get the dog back. Um, <laughs> of course. I know so, this guy's vibe now. Yeah, yeah, they'll get the dog back. And Dolly so, Parton will show up at the end and sing a song and everybody's yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that. you know, I'm not knocking it. Uh, you know, people need movies like that. Somebody's got to make them, and, and this guy's got the skills to do it. Uh, I haven't seen most of them, uh, but uh, they seem fine. Now, early in his career uh, as an editor, he also worked on such films as 82's The Slumber Party Massacre, uh, Android, which is a Klaus Kinski space movie, Space Raiders in 1984's City Limits. Mm. Um, when 
when he's been asked about Critters, uh, it's my understanding he's also, he's pointed out that Critters was conceived prior to Gremlins, but that they actually went back in and like had, like they changed it around a bit to make sure that they weren't too close to the Gremlins format. So, I don't know, sounds reasonable to me. Now, one of the other writers on this is Dominic Muir, who lives, lived 1962 through 2010. Uh, this is his earliest credit on a produced screenplay. But he went on to work on scripts for such movies as 2005's The Ginger Dead Man, oh, uh, 2006's oh, Evil Bong, oh. and the rest of the Evil Bong movies. All of these are definitely their own thing, but I think uh, these movies, along with other uh, full moon entertainment uh, um, style uh, fairs such as uh, like Puppet Master and, uh, and so forth, I think those are all kind of in the shadow of Gremlins as well. Those aren't necessarily creatures but they're you know evil vindictive puppet type things running around killing people i've in, enjoyed many a z-grade movie in my time but i i recall the ginger dead man being so painful to get through <laughs> <laughs> it's like voice of gary Busey, isn't it uh yeah he's somehow i haven't seen them but he's somehow involved with these pictures uh yeah yeah he's in the he's in that one and then tommy chong is involved with the evil bong franchise Mm. as is rabbit oh okay well, i'd watch it just for rabbit <laughs> all right uh moving into the cast here uh top billing on this one is uh d wallace aka d wallace stone uh playing helen brown the mom this is an actor born in 1948 uh she's been she's been a lot of tv and film over the years uh, but really established herself as a sci-fi and horror staple uh, her credits include The Stepford Wives from 75, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes from 77, The Howling from 81, E.T. from 82, mm-hmm. Cujo from 83. Uh, in 1990, she was an Alligator 2, The Mutation, Popcorn in 91, and a whole string of more recent films. Uh, a lot of times you'll have horror directors working today kind of you know, bring her back in. Um, you know, in part because of the nostalgia of these previous roles she had. So you'll find her in a couple of Rob Zombie productions, including Lords of Salem. She also pops up in How in the House of the Devil. She's still very active. Dee Wallace is great as always. And you hear, I feel like you can really see her filling out the full scale of feel good to feel bad films because you got, you know, okay, so at the at the full feel good end, she's in E.T., great in that. At the full feel bad end, she's in Cujo, just one of the nastiest most depressing horror movies ever uh and then here i'd say critters is right in the middle it's right between et and cujo yeah she she does a great job in this film delivering the idea of like the the brave mom in this kind of traditional very traditional almost 1950s household uh but is also put through extreme terror by these uh, attacking monstrosities now we'll get to the rest of her family in a second uh we're going to go ahead and go to the next uh build actor and that this concerns the character Harv, who's the local sheriff, played by the legendary character actor M. Emmett Walsh. So when we were trying to decide what movie to, to feature for this week, we saw that M. Emmett Walsh was in Critters. And I uh, it was brought to my mind uh, that Roger Ebert had a rule. He said that he thought that no film, I think I'm getting this right, no film featuring either Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh could be entirely bad. And I was like, but I bet he broke that rule with Critters and gave it a one star. Nope, three stars for Critters. <laughs> he liked Critters. Yeah, he wasn't, wasn't as crazy about Critters 2, but he liked Critters 1. Um, I should also add, in trying to decide which film to cover here, 
we're it, it, it and I've encountered this conundrum before with the Critters franchise is where do you where do you go because all four films have the Critters in them and each one has someone involved in it that makes it seem irresistible like I mean this one you have M.M. at Walsh and it's the first movie I think it's two is uh, you uh, has uh, David Tui working on the script and then also mm. Leonardo DiCaprio's perhaps his film debut I don't recall offhand. And then a later uh, version, uh, what I think four has Brad Dorif and Angela Bassett in it. So, oh boy, yeah. So you know, there's so many reasons to go with each one. We decided to go with the first one. Maybe we'll the next four weeks just do all of them. Yeah, yeah we'll see. We'll, we'll see how this one lands <laughs> for everyone. Um, so anyway, Walsh, yes, born 1935, still active today. Legendary character actor who's been active since the late 60s. Up through the 70s, he tended to play smaller roles in the likes of 69's Alice's Restaurant, 71's Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Serpico in 73, Slapshot in 77. He's the, the mad shooter in 79's The Jerk. But during the 1980s, he, this is when he really cemented his status uh, as this you know, desired character actor that is both uh, can be threatening, but also very humorous and also have this kind of like blue collar mentality. Uh, he, he pops up in uh, 1982's Blade Runner playing uh, Bryant. This mm-hmm. is um, Harrison Ford. This is Decker's boss, right? Yeah, Deckard's boss. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oh, and then, of course, he plays private detective Lauren Visser in the Coen Brothers debut 1984 film Blood Simple. Just a marvelous villainous performance. Fantastic in this role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He also has a fun but small role in the 1987 Coen Brothers film Raising Arizona. Mm. So he's worked continuously in just any and everything from indie pictures to blockbusters. Uh, Can't possibly list them all here. I'll have everyone know, though, that his episode of the 90s Outer Limits, The Refuge, is a really good one. Uh, He also did a Tales from the Crypt episode titled Collection Completed, directed by Mary Lambert. Hmm. All right. Now back to the family. We have Jay Brown, the dad, a very traditional, again, kind of almost 1950s dad, always wants to be working on the car in the basement tinkering with stuff. He's played by Billy Green Bush, born 1935, an American character actor whose earliest roles included an episode of the original Outer Limits in the early 60s, but he mostly made his name in the 70s, popping up in uh, films like uh, Five Easy Pieces from from 1970. Uh, His other credits include 1986's The Hitcher and Jason Goes to Hell, where he plays Sheriff Landis in his final role before retiring from acting. What a send-off. I can't believe it. Wow. All right. And then, of course, we have our kid. Uh, and we have a great kid in this. Uh, this is a great child actor performance, a very um, fun vision of childhood. Like, he, this is, this is like you mentioned, he's a pyromaniac. He's really into getting firecrackers and creating more powerful explosives. Uh-huh. But in a, way, and in a way that modern parents may watch and be like, mm, this was not a good idea. But at the same time, had I seen the original critters back in the day as a kid, I would have loved every second of this because the idea of standing up to alien monsters with your own childhood ingenuity uh, is just instantly appealing. Agreed. In the, in the very uh, old fashioned picture of the main family shown in this movie, the, the, the main character really is like a boy with gumption. Yeah. (laughs) But he's fun. 
Yeah, he's a lot of fun. He's played by Scott Grimes, born 1971, child actor of the 80s who continues to work in TV and film today. His more recent credits include American Dad, The Orville, and Oppenheimer. He's hmm. in the cast of Oppenheimer. Okay, you have a kid. You also need a b- kind of bratty older sister, a teenage older sister, and that's what we have in April Brown, played by Nadine Vanderveld, born 1962, 80s teen actor who eventually transitioned into writing and producing children's television. Uh, she has the honor of having acted in not one but two Gromlins movies because she's also in 1987's Munchies. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, her other credits include 83's Private School, 88's Shadow Dancing, and 89's After Midnight, a horror anthology written and directed by Jim and Ken Wheat. She's also great in this, but also... Uh continues the the trend of not very surprising characterizations she is the teenager looking to get into trouble yeah now our next character is um charlie mcfadden who is i guess the sort of the alcoholic geek of the um of the picture he's kind of he's kind of an outcast but a likable outcast for the most part he he also has energy that may remind one of like a michael richards sort of a role you know yeah, he gives a, a struggling, mostly comedic performance. Uh, he he is the town drunk who's like always receiving messages from aliens uh, through the fillings in his teeth, he says. Uh, and then he is proved right in the end by the uh, alien invasion. But he's also he plays the role very like clumsy, like he's always, you know, his bicycles falling over and stuff and he's having a hard time. Yeah, uh, he's played by Don Keith Opper, born 1949, mostly known for critter movies. Uh, but you'll also find him in that 1982 Android film that I already referenced, City, uh, uh, City Limits, which I also referenced. That's, by the way, an MST3K film as well. He pops up in 1986's Black Moon Rising and various TV projects. Uh, he has a very small role in 1993's Ghost in the Machine, which we previously discussed on Weird House Cinema. Oh, and then also he has an additional uh, additional dialogue uh, or additional scenes credit on the um, the script for this picture. So... Uh, I don't know, maybe he wrote his own lines. I'm not sure what the the full story is there. Now, someone who's not in all four is is April's boyfriend, Steve. Steve is played by Billy Zane. Absolutely unforgivable underuse of Billy Zane. Billy Zane gets (laughs) eaten by the Krites too early, and they they do not get maximum Zane out of him. Yeah, I mean he's he's good. He, he has a little bit of you see a little bit of the the Billy Zane charm in this role. Uh, this is only his second role, following a small part in 1985's Back to the Future. But um, yeah, it's it's weird because they don't do a lot with him, and this film also is just too nice to give us like a deplorable boyfriend that we're okay with the monsters eating. Uh, no, Steve seems fine. Yeah, he's yeah, he's, <laughs> he's all right. <laughs> he's a decent guy. He's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's funny because it feels like when we're first introduced to him, they're setting him up to be a real jerk, and then he's just not. Like he he seems like a nice guy. Yeah, he even has nice table manners. All right, uh, we also have Ethan Phillips in this, playing a less likable character. This is like a, um, a deputy uh, by the name of Jeff. Ethan Phillips was born in 1955. He's another exceptional character actor. Uh, Trekkies know him best as Neelix, or Neelix. I'm not sure how to pronounce this this, uh, this creature. Uh, but he was on Star Trek Voyager, which is not one I, I ever watched. Uh, but his other credits include 1987's Werewolf, 1994's The Shadow, 
2005's The Island. He pops up on Better Call Saul. And uh, he had a terrific role on Avenue 5 uh, that ran two seasons on HBO where he plays uh, veteran astronaut Spike Martin. Uh, in this, he plays like a a lazy and lovelorn police officer who's uh, always uh, trying to ask out the dispatcher over the radio. Yeah, yeah. But he has an unmistakable voice uh, and, and, and is a lot of fun. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed him in many things. He's especially good, again, in Avenue 5. Oh, but wait, we really delayed getting to one of the great screen presences in this movie, a character with very few lines, but, a, but an unforgettable look. That's right. We're talking about Ugg here. But more, as we'll discuss, Ugg is a shape-shifting alien, um, but he takes on the form of Johnny Steele, a rock star that the aliens see on television. If this is confusing, we'll explain it in the plot <laughs> section. So Johnny Steele and Ugg are both played by Terrence Mann, born 1951, highly accomplished actor of stage, screen, and television. He's a three-time Tony nominee who has played major roles in just an impressive array of Broadway plays and musicals, including playing Frankenfurter at one point in the 2000s revival of uh, the Rocky Horror Show on Broadway. Mm. I bet he was great in that role. Uh, yeah, I, I just I saw some like kind of crappy footage uh, that was taken of him in the role, and it, it looks great. And in seeing him in this, especially in the rock star get up, it's like you can tell. It's like, oh yeah, this guy was born to play Frankenfurter. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody is, but this guy certainly was. Now, on top of his uh, his stage career and his musical career on Broadway, uh, many of you will also know him as the actor playing the multiple elder clones of Emperor Cleon, a.k.a. Brother Dusk, in the Apple series Foundation. Uh, he's incredible in that, with Lee Pace playing the younger incarnations. Uh, so basically, you have a dynasty of clones in that show, and at any given time, three of them are awake. Um, a, a, a child... Um, a, a mature man and then an aging man. So you have brothers Dawn, brother Day, and brother Dusk, mm. with the central brother being the one in in full command, uh, with brother Dusk being kind of more in an advisor role and also as a you know kind of a, a, a scribe's role. Uh, but it's it's amazing because even though they are all clones of this original emperor, we see different variations in how they're presented, and it'll carry over from say Lee Pace's performance in one episode to um, Terrence Mann's performance of that same emperor in the next uh, episode after, you know, several decades have supposedly passed. Hmm. So anyway, I can't say enough nice things about Terrence Mann. Um, we can discuss to what extent he gets to um, <laughs> to flex his acting muscles in this film, uh, but his film and TV credits include all four original Critter movies, uh, the Netflix series Since Eight, the Dresden Files, and he's also in Big Top Pee-wee. I believe he plays a clown. Hmm. He has one of those screen presences that's just hip- hypnotic. Like, anytime he's on screen, you're looking at him, or at least I was. Mm-hmm. Now, a quick uh, quick note here. When it comes to the Krites, the Krites do speak in their own weird alien language. I don't think they had a linguist invent this, but they, no. they do squawk to each other, and we get subtitle translations of what they say. And their voices are provided by veteran, or certainly now veteran, uh, voice actor uh, Corey Burton, born 1955. Uh, he's been done so much work, again, can't even begin to mention everything he's worked on. But I know him best from Star Wars The Clone Wars, where he did a number of voices, including the voices of Count Dooku and also the voice of Cad Bane 
who he also voices in the book of Boba Fett. The Krites have no word for thank you. <laughs> but the Krite voices are, are good, despite the fact that, you know, it doesn't really sound like a language. Yeah, it's just they're cartoon creatures. Now, the Krites physically were created by the Chiodo brothers. Uh, Chiodo Brother Productions, these are brothers Stephen, Charles, and Edward Chiodo, best known for their 1988 film, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That is their magnum <laughs> <laughs> um, which which is a lot of fun and has some just terrific uh, creature effects in it. You know, I, I think the critters actually look pretty great. Uh, I, I like the, the creature effects here. Yeah, they're they're puppety, but but very good, very solid. They did the effects on all four Critters movies. They also worked on 1988's UHF, 1991's Ernest Scared Stupid, which I remember enjoying quite a bit and finding scarier than I expected. Yes. I think this is a really common memory. I've talked to other people about this, about this is a movie that's supposed to be funny and for kids, but lots of kids found it actually terrifying, the troll in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they, they're responsible for the troll effects there. They also worked on 2003's Elf. That's the actual Elf movie, <laughs> the, the one that you may watch for, the, for, uh, for Christmas this year. Uh, they also worked on 2004's Team America World Police. And there has long been talk of a new Killer Clowns movie uh, coming into being. I don't know where that project currently stands. And then finally, the score is by David Newman, born 1954, prolific composer for film, um, mostly working on films that I haven't seen or don't want to see or have no memory of the score from having seen. Uh, which, again, is not necessarily a bad thing, as, I, as I've said before. A film, core can, a film score can be effective and kind of invisible, uh, especially when you're dealing with comedies and the like. And it looks like he did a lot of comedies. Uh, this was only his second score following the 1984 Tim Burton short Frankenweenie. Hmm. And, you know, some of the feel-good music in, in it is just a little um, mushy. But I did really like the the musical number that they play over the end credits. Yeah. Uh, some fun synthesizer work in there. And then also some of the tensor moments, some of the action music is also pretty fun. I know that's your style and that stuff is good. But I, I would give them credit also and say that the kind of like mushy, sentimental feel-good music is important in establishing the, the feel-good themes of this movie. Like, yeah. uh, it really helps you feel like, ah, okay, we're home on the farm now and everything's okay. Yeah, and, and clearly that was important to the, the 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 film they were trying to make so yeah absolutely no problem with it like when <laughs> this like very much rescuing a cat from a mailbox music that kind of yeah thing. yeah exactly across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. 
Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Okay, you want to talk about the plot? Yeah, let's get into Critters 1 here. We begin in space, so there are stars twinkling in the background, and then we see a giant shadowy wad of gray rock floating in the middle distance. A subtitle tells us that this is Prison Asteroid Sector 17 Maximum Security. Then we get some uh, like space space traffic control on, on the radio channels. There's, there's chatter. Voices are speaking in, uh, in English, by the way. We, we don't have to deal with subtitles for this. They say, uh, radar control, this is Prison Transport 9961 requesting permission to land. And the Prison Transport ship explains that it has a cargo of eight Krite prisoners. Uh, Krites is what the aliens are called in this movie. You might think that they're called critters, but actually that just comes from a kid calling them critters later in the film when he doesn't know that they're called Krites. I haven't dug into the origins of this movie to figure out where the word Krite comes from, like why they picked that, if it has something to do with Criterion. I, I don't know. <laughs> that would be great. Criterion Collection. Criterion yeah. Collection, yes. Whatever a Krite is, uh, the space traffic controller says they've been expecting the ship for a while, but uh, weren't you supposed to have 10 Krites rather than eight? And oh, yeah, the pilot confirms they originally had 10, but they've had such problems. The Krites are eating everything on the ship. Uh, two of them were killed along the way or they wouldn't have had enough food to make the journey. So these are eating machines, whatever they are. Yeah, I have questions about the, the ethics of this prison system. Yes. Uh, but, but clearly Krites are bad news. So now we're inside the prison facility and we see a humanoid alien sort of zipping around on a personal hovercraft. The alien is wearing insulated armor with hoses snaking around connected to various nozzles. It has a big head like Exeter in this island Earth uh, with like scalp flaps connecting its shoulders to its head like a skin hood. The skin is sort of pale blue gray and this guy is called Zanti. <laughs> I love how this movie, much like TerraVision, just kicks off with this uh, this unreal, slightly hammy, but well-crafted science fiction alien scenario from which we are then going to remove ourselves to re-enter a human world. 
yeah, like nothing else will take place here after the prologue. We're just mm-hmm. like seeing this world and then we're going to spend the rest of the movie on Earth. And I kind of like that dynamic. Yeah. Uh, so something goes wrong with the prisoner transfer. People on the radio are calling for backup. and They say the Kreitz are up to something. And then there are explosions coming from somewhere. And I, yeah, I like the little view we get of this like multicultural alien facility. There are obviously multiple different kinds of sentient aliens working here. It's not just like one species from one planet. Uh, and we don't get a great look at most of them. We see uh, just flashes of like some interesting silhouettes in the shadows and the smoke. Mm-hmm. And I like stuff like this. I like intriguing little glimpses of an unfamiliar world without too much detail. Yeah, yeah, just a hint of the the uh, the, the interplanetary world from which the the Krites, uh, are arriving. Anyway, word comes down to the alien control room that the Krites have hijacked a ship and escaped. Oh, no. And we see close-ups of tiny, slimy, clawed hands operating levers and pushing buttons in a sci-fi cockpit. And we don't see what the creatures look like in full yet. Uh, the, the stolen spaceship blasts its way out of port and then soars off into the void. And then back on the prison asteroid, the uh, operator announces their next move. They call the alien bounty hunters. And here we are treated to a suiting up montage. And this raised a question for me. Where does the visual meme of the suiting up montage come from? I mainly associate it with Batman movies, starting with Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. Uh, But it's in basically all of them. Rob, I've got a link actually to a YouTube video I found that's just a compilation of all the Batman suiting up montages. So the way it usually works is you get extreme close-ups of buckles fastening, buttons snapping, gloves sliding onto hands, gear sliding into holsters. In the case of Batman, sometimes you just get like the bat symbol or just like butt cheeks flexing in bat pants. Mm. Uh, So you see all of the elements of the outfit being donned and locked into place before you see the character in full costume. And in the case of Critters, we get the same thing with the bounty hunters they have um these like kind of weird uh, brown and black studded leather costumes a little bit sci-fi a little bit conan the barbarian a little bit just leather and we, we see the buttons snapping the belts and straps pulling tight knife going into a sheath etc uh, but critters actually came out before the 89 burton batman so obviously it didn't get it from there I, I assume this must be something that was in movies or tv shows already but where does it come from hmm, i don't have an answer i i, I would like to explore uh explore this topic more um because i would guess it probably does have something to do with leather and a kind of fetishization of leather. It probably has something to do with biker movies and or uh, like full mm. body leather cat suits. Um, I can't help but wonder if we might find an answer in, say, 1968's The Girl on a Motorcycle starring Marianne Faithful or, uh, or something of that nature. You know, something to where like clearly the leather costume is key somehow to the vision for the picture. And we're going to have a filmmaker that's insightful enough to add all those small details leading up to the whole. Hmm, yeah. And so you see all the buckles and the clasps and everything before you see the outfit. Yeah. But I don't know. I, 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 this is a mystery to me. I, I haven't, haven't looked into, the, into it yet. Though I will say the suit up montage here has a nice twist because 
uh, usually I'm I, I'm used to seeing Batman after this montage is done. But here, when the bounty hunters are finally shown in full, they're standing side by side in a dark corridor and they are faceless. Their heads are just smooth, featureless, pale green orbs. Good design choice. I like it. Yeah, I think the overall I'm instantly in love with this concept because yeah, the green, uh, featureless faces, uh, this, you know, this has a lot of alien mystery to it. And then their costumes are very, like, bounty huntery in the, uh, the sort of Star Wars sense of the, the, the words. Because mm-hmm. they have, um, they kind of have some very worn and kind of rough-looking elements, you know, like they're kind of, uh, some, some of the fabric looks, looks very worn out. But then also, the, like, the, all the leather stuff looks like it's very uh, utilitarian. Like, these are guys or something that are used to getting stuff done. It's not the clean, uh, new, freshly pressed look of Star Trek. Here, space looks lived in, more like Star Wars. Everything's kind of messy and worn out. Yeah, and they're kind of like space bikers to a certain extent, too. Yeah. Well, anyway, these creatures are now on the case. Zanti here charges them with tracking down the Krites and destroying them before they can feed. And he offers them full payment when when the uh, job is completed. So now we cut to Earth. Here we get farmland, golden wheat fields, a windmill, a wooden rail fence, an axe wedged in a chopping block, except I was, why is it a fire axe? It's got that, like the Pulaski back. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But nice homey music letting you know that it's just a sleepy little village vibe. Everything is A-OK. No flesh gobbling aliens, no bounty hunters roaming around. This place is doing fine. (laughs) Inside the house, Dee Wallace is making breakfast. She's like sizzling bacon in a cast iron pan. There is a bottle of vegetable oil next to the pan. And I don't know if this is what what it's implying, but folks, you do not need to add oil to the pan when you're making bacon. (laughs) Bacon will render its own fat. Maybe it's vegetarian bacon. I don't know. Oh, maybe. Okay. No, it's it's, It's it's not. It's bacon. bacon. Uh, So we meet the Brown family here. Uh, the, the mom is Helen. That's Dee Wallace. She is kind, loving, and self-sacrificing. She works hard to take care of her family. Uh, you see that she doesn't have a lot of time for herself. Like, there's one moment, and, you know, she's, like, constantly trying to do things for the family and the kids, and they're uh, barely noticing. And then there's one scene where she tries to sit down and read a book, uh, but is interrupted by the alien invasion. Uh, though she shows herself to be ferocious later on in the film in beating Kreitz with the butt of a shotgun. Uh, <laughs> there are like multiple scenes where the aliens are coming at the family and she's just whacking them with a gun held backwards. Yeah. So they initially present a very, again, kind of like 50s and 60s era TV mom. But uh, then they're able to uh, twist that a little bit and show that, yeah, she can also get in there and kill some Kreitz. Okay, we got the dad, Jay. Uh, On one hand, he's just like a real down-home, like, chicken fried steak of a man. He, You know, his mother was a tractor, his father was a cow chip, and he wears overalls. And on on the other hand, though, he's in some kind of Ghostbusters-themed bowling team. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to figure that out. I was like, what is dad's off-brand Ghostbuster where about and then i realized oh it's a it's a bowling pin this is the mascot for this bowling team because we do see it a lot yeah he's he's a a fun character like he is very seems very checked out like at one point in the film when um april uh, the daughter is about to to go on her date there with billy zane he's like uh have you had the talk with our daughter uh and she's like yes of course i've had 
the talk with our like clearly 25 year old daughter <laughs> at this point. It was years ago. And he's like, years ago. Um, oh, he's, boy. <laughs> he's also constantly drinking out of mason jars for some reason. Oh, yeah. Like, I think he gets served coffee in a mason jar. Everyone else is drinking out of glass, normal glassware. He's drinking his coffee out of a mason jar and stirring, if not honey, then possibly jam into it. It I looked like honey. Out. Yes, he was adding yeah. honey to his coffee. It's like, okay, Dad, whatever whatever you need, I guess. That, I don't know why that seems so weird. People add honey to their tea, but for some reason I, I don't think about that with coffee. Maybe because coffee is already acidic and honey is also acidic. I've never added honey to a coffee. Uh, I mean, it may be some people's thing. If it's your thing, write in. Let us know why you made this choice in life. All right, now on to the kids. Uh, you mentioned April, the daughter. She's your classic country girl yearning for a no good city boy with vanity plates on his car uncreative ones his billy zane's vanity plates say uh what do they say two great (laughs) gr8 come on billy zane that is not that's not very good were you trying to think of it while you were standing in line yeah and plus it's just it's too prideful you're gonna get eaten by space aliens with that vanity plate April has low tolerance for the geeky antics of her little brother, uh, and she she lashes out at him in spite. The little brother with the geeky antics is Brad, the son of the family. He likes to hog the bathroom when his sister needs it. He likes to play hooky, skip school, and manufacture his own firecrackers. But like I said, he has gumption. Yeah. So we get to meet the family over breakfast, get to know them, see the tensions between brother and sister. They're they're like tattling on each other about things and uh, and running off to school. I don't think we ever see them at school. We just see them later back at home. Now, in the notes here, you point out that they have a Chemex. Uh, that's how yes. they're making their coffee. That's which right. Which also alarmed me because I didn't even know they had them back then. I, I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't exposed to them until I was in like my early thirties or something where I was like, wow, a bold new way to make coffee, but <laughs> it's not so bold or so new. I, I love pour over coffee and we use a Chemex here at home. Uh, and yeah, they've been around for a while. They, they were famous. They were like a famous product design in the mid, uh, the mid century. I think they're from the forties or the fifties originally. Uh, there, there's some kind of thing about like the Chemex carafe being like featured in the, the, I don't know, museum of modern art or something. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know much about it. But uh, so would you find it out of keeping with the character of the family as otherwise presented to hear that they have a Chemex or do you find it acceptable? I don't know if it's out of keeping or not. I don't know who normally would use a Chemex at this time, but uh, I just was like, hey, I've got one of those that's in their kitchen. (laughs) It looks just like ours. I tend to think of it as the coffee maker that coffee shops and sometimes individuals will have on a shelf. (laughs) <laughs> and and if you were to ask about it, they'd be like, oh, that's just for show. Nobody uses that. Well, it does look nice, but no, it makes it looks a great nice. cup. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, vessel. That's sure. That's for sure. I think the main thing is it's like a simple design. And then it's got these uh, filters, sort of uh, rectangular filters that are uh, a thick kind of paper that is supposed to, I guess, because of the thickness or something is supposed to make coffee that is like less bitter or uh, I don't know, has like a cleaner taste. I don't know if that's really true. I'm not a coffee geek and I've, I haven't A-B tested all this. But yeah, we, we like the coffee we make in our Chemex. Cool. They didn't pay us for that. Ooh, maybe we should try <laughs> to get them as a sponsor. We can... <laughs> As seen in Critters. (laughs) As seen, exactly, yeah. Okay, 
So also we're going to check in with some more characters at town police headquarters. Uh, so we get Harv, the police chief. That's M. Emmett Walsh. He's somehow greasy and creaky at the same time. If this metaphor makes sense, it's like he needs a spray of WD-40, but he got a squirt of chicken fat instead. <laughs> and now the hinges are squealing louder than ever. He is the dyspeptic arm of the law. That's some M. Emmett Walsh magic right there. That's like the, that's the, the, the perfect formula. Uh, We've also got Sally, his assistant. She's a bit aloof from the here and now because her head is wrapped up in stories she's reading in the tabloids featuring the top headline, headline, Mr. Spock is the father of my baby. Yeah, she's somewhat checked out. Uh, You also got Charlie McFadden. This is the the Otis of the story. Again, he's the town drunk. He's also an auto mechanic. Uh, I think Jay earlier is like working on a car in the basement of the house. I guess they've got like a garage underneath their house. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Jay was like, where's Charlie? So he was supposed to be there helping him, but he didn't show up. Uh, Charlie says he used to have a promising baseball career ahead of him, but then he started receiving messages from aliens in the fillings in his teeth. And this interfered with his baseball prospects. And now his prospects are are rye whiskey in a jail cell every night. Mm. Now let's check in with the bounty hunters. They're cruising the galaxy in their in their ship uh, when they get a holograph message from their boss, uh, Zanti. Zanti says they have tracked the Krites to a solar system with only one planet that supports life. It is called Earth. They should be able to use their shape-shifting abilities to blend in when they arrive at Earth. Earth, and he's sending a data tape with information about the planet and its civilizations. And he also starts telling them not to destroy everything in sight once they get there, but they like hang up on him in the middle of this exhortation. Yeah, they they have a rough, as we'll see, they have a very rough hand when it comes to uh, critter elimination. Yeah. So uh, they roll the tape containing what aliens know about Earth. Uh, it literally says Earth is a culture of many contrasts. <laughs> like, did the Simpsons get it from there? Maybe. Uh, but they sort of do the, the David Bowie thing from the man who fell to Earth. They're watching a bunch of random different TV footage spliced together at, at super speed. There's like I don't. I was just trying to pause it and see what are these things. There's like a dude in a lab coat talking at the camera with a bunch of beakers. There are car crashes, the hydrogen bomb, Robin Hood. I think a Robin Hood movie, mm-hmm. uh, aerobics routines from the 1920s. But then finally, it lands on a music video. It's rock and roll. Oh, I think we also saw just a glimpse of Klaus Kinski from Android in there as well. Did we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I that makes so. sense. Yeah. yeah, the director's own films. That's part of the training. But you mentioned the rock and roll, and that's key. Yeah, so once they get to the rock and roll, they slow it down to normal speed because this is educational. Uh, the artist is called Johnny Steele, and the song is called The Power of the Night. We will hear it many <laughs> times in the film. You, you get like... I don't know how many minutes of of uh, audio time for the power of the night, but it's clearly a a, a favorite of uh, of the Earthlings at this point. Yeah, yeah, rocking. Uh, the bounty hunters are digging the music, as Johnny Alucard would say. Uh, another Johnny. Uh, I just I wrote down some of the lyrics. Here's one: Night times on fire. We are the heat. The flame is desire. Burns in the seat. <laughs> hmm. 
But the bounty hunters are like, now that's what I call music. And mm-hmm. one of them is feeling the power of the night so hard that his face melts. Uh, or I guess I should say his non-face melts, like the green orb melts away, it dissolves, and then it is replaced by, what is this? It's a human skull with flesh and blood slowly building up around it through a pretty cool reverse mm-hmm. melting effect. There are multiple parts of this movie that use reverse footage effects. Uh, there's one part later where like a, a a blown up house is reassembled through a reverse footage here. But this is obviously reverse footage to like put a mask onto a face. Uh, I guess they filmed it maybe melting away and then reversed it. But by the time it's done, the bounty hunter is Johnny Steele from the music video. Looks exactly like him. Great effect sequence and also just solid choice with the the shape-shifting aliens choosing a rock star to be their avatar on Earth. Or one of them does. The other one hasn't made up their mind yet and is and just can't find something that suits them. So back on the uh, the Brown family farm, uh, Brad and Charlie are playing with firecrackers while Charlie is supposed to be working. Charlie's supposed to be helping Jay fix his truck. Uh, but instead, Charlie is yeah hanging out with the kid doing firecrackers, I think repairing his slingshot. And then April brings home her new boyfriend. And by God, it's Billy Zane. Mm-hmm. The character is named Steve Elliott. They pull up in a car that is a city car. Uh, and unfortunately, Steve is a city boy. And that, that does not fly around here. Jay comes and investigates Billy Zane's car. And he observes that one would not be able to haul much hay in it. <laughs> I like uh, Billy Zane's reaction to that line. It's just like a, a little glimpse of like the, the natural charisma and um, an ultimate acting ability of Billy Zane. You just see, just see a little peek of it here, but you can see why he went on to other things. He's like, yeah, I can't haul much hay in this. And Billy Zane's like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) But there's an unfortunate slingshot incident in the scene. So Charlie is trying to demonstrate that he has fixed Brad's slingshot and he shoots a pebble at like a, a, a Coke can up on a fence post, but misses and hits April in the butt. And then, uh, she turns around angry, but she assumes it was Brad who, did the slingshotting and Brad heroically takes the blame, even though it was Charlie. He doesn't want Charlie to get in trouble and loses his mechanic job with his dad. So he's like, yeah, okay, I did it. He's noble. He's a good kid. Yeah. And he's sent, he's sent to bed without supper. So we follow Brad to his bedroom where he, I was looking at the posters. He has posters for Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. uh, the police as, yep. as in the band sting and the police, not the, mm-hmm. uh, not the police, uh, tree leaves and ferns, the United States map, and he's listening to a cassette tape of Power of the Night. So he is a Johnny Steele fan. I think we've discussed this before on the show, but you know, I love a good kid's room represented in a movie. I love to look at all the details and see to what degree they pulled it off and made it believable, to what extent they're acknowledging actual franchises that a child in this time period would have been into. And I feel like they nailed it pretty well. Uh, I've seen plenty, especially more recent films, where I'm like, oh, you just you printed out some stock art. Those yeah. are not real movies. Those are not real comic book characters. Not buying it. But this one does does a good job. I agree for the most part, except I don't know. I could be wrong about this, but I'm like, were there that many like 12 year olds who really liked the police? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. OK. I don't know why the police here. It would have been. But, you know, he's a he doesn't. Johnny like Steele makes more sense. Johnny Steele makes sense. And maybe he. You know, a different kid would have been more into metal, but I don't really buy that Brad would be, it would have been a metalhead. So maybe, I mean, there's all sorts of weird 
realistically, when you look back on the bands you get into yeah. when you start getting into music, sometimes they're weird fits, you know? Like, That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, look for examples from your own musical past, listeners. I'm sure you can think of some good ones. I'm just trying to imagine like Brad sitting there in his bedroom making firecrackers, listening to Walking on the Moon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Roxanne. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, while he's in his bedroom uh, being sent to bed without supper as punishment, uh, April and Billy Zane are having dinner with their parents, including corn on the cob. And oof, man, you go home to 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 meet your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend's parents and, and they have corn on the cob. It just seems like it's a recipe for disaster. How do you not get it in your teeth? How do you keep your dignity? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's intentional. It's like there's no way they'll be making out later if we serve corn on the cob. But um, but yeah, like we said earlier, this this uh, meal actually goes pretty well. And yeah. I feel like um, uh, the boyfriend is respectful. And also, we should note at this point in the film, everyone is still marked safe from from critter attacks. We That's have right. not had any fatalities on planet Earth due to critters. That's right. Uh, so, uh, but eventually April and Billy Zane they leave to go for a ride, I think. But April is actually just taking Billy Zane to the barn to make out with him. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly like freaked out. He's like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. But she's like, ah, come on. Uh, My parents will never think to look in the barn. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Brad sneaks out through his bedroom window uh, and while climbing on the roof, witnesses the arrival of an alien spaceship. It flies over the farm, causes a mighty rumble, and Jay sees it too. He he catches Brad sneaking out. So you think Brad's going to be in a lot of trouble, but then there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a thing I liked here. It's kind of sweet where like the dad catches Brad doing what he's not supposed to, but he's, but instead they're like, okay, well, let's go investigate, see what this is. It, it's kind of sweet. <laughs> oh, but what they find is not so sweet. They find a mutilated cow. So we're back in cattle mutilation oh, territory. We are. This is, I didn't, I, I don't remember if this came up when we talked about uh, the return, which uh, is, uh, is is definitely a cattle mutilation movie. Uh, so uh, yeah, clearly they're dipping into cattle mutilation uh, panic a bit here. They say, "What could have done this?" Well, uh, it was Kreitz, of course, but we yeah. we don't see the Kreitz until. I think the first time we see them is when Jay, the dad, has to go down in the basement. Or wait, is the deputy killed first? Oh, maybe. So the police deputy is uh, driving around. Something goes out in front of him in the road. He swerves uh, and then he is he gets out of his car and is attacked by Kreitz. We don't see them, but there's some kind of furry creature that pulls him underneath the car and, and gobbles him up. Yeah. But then comes the basement attack scene. Uh, right. Yeah. And, so it, the 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 phones and the power are out, and uh, Jay thinks he has to go back in, to go into the basement to flip the breaker. But when he goes down there, what is that? There's something moving on the shelf, almost pulsing in the dark. What could it be? He goes to investigate, and it is this strange, furry, hedgehog-like creature that uh, the, the these creatures start jumping out, biting him, and it becomes a actually quite visceral, bloody attack. They like shoot at him with these quills. And when this, uh, I guess the elements of a cried attack involve biting with razor sharp teeth, which draws a lot of blood. There are the poison quills, which when they hit you, render you unconscious, though typically when they're pulled out, people wake up immediately. Uh, and then there's also the the Kreitz can move quickly by turning into a tumbleweed and rolling or like Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, they're kind of like a cross between Sonic the Hedgehog and 
a mythic version of a porcupine, you know, the, yeah. like the, the sort of myth that, oh, a porcupine can fire its quills at you. Well, Kreitz certainly do. And yeah, there's a lot of blood here. I had not, I, I'm not sure if I ever saw Critters 1. I think mainly I saw Critters 2 back in the day. Um, but um, I, either way, not remembering what happens here, I thought dad was done for. I thought yeah. like this, he's lost too much blood. He's got too many Kreitz on him. He's done for. It really did seem that way. There's a lot of peril, but dad is rescued. Uh, 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 D. Wallace and Brad are able to grab him and pull him up the staircase out of the cellar uh, and get him to safety. And yeah, like like you were saying, there's a lot of blood. There is a lot of blood just generally in this movie for a PG-13 especially, but the blood is often poorly lit. So in some mm-hmm. of the most violent scenes, it'll be in like a dark room and the blood appears as just like dark, wet patches on the clothing rather than like bright red and running. Yeah, and we don't really get a lot of what I would say like gory human kills. Yeah, uh, most of the gory kills we get really are the are Kreitz getting blasted, uh, sometimes in a very comedic fashion, which we'll get to. Right, and we do get another tragic human death. So you know, nobody really cared about this uh, this police deputy who got eaten, but but now they're going to do it to Billy Zane. I can't believe it. So Kreitz attack April and Billy Zane in the barn while they're making out, and they like bite Billy Zane in the stomach and start chomping on his guts. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I was just I was so torn up about it. How could they? I think this is see this is the scene where he reaches for the radio and they bite his fingers off initially yes. too. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah. It's a rough death for this actually like seemingly likable young man who made the mistake of going to the country. He should not have. He should have stayed in the city. Don't listen to Neil Young. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Oh, are you ready for the country? Yeah, he was not. He was no, not. it seems like a warning, actually. I think that's, <laughs> I think he should have listened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's about Kreitz, I think. Neil Young is singing, like, are you ready for the country? Because they've got some Kreitz. Uh, but Brad comes in and he saves the day by convincing a Krite to eat one of his firecrackers. And then it like blows up inside the Krite. And you think the Krite's going to like just like explode with chunks going everywhere. But instead there is a comedic like it's sort of its belly pooches out and then it just like keels over. Mm-hmm. Smoke out of the mouth. Basically like a cartoon coyote ate a hot chili pepper kind of a yes. thing. So solid. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell TechFest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. 
Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. So there are a bunch more uh, sort of just crite battling set pieces that I'm not going to recount in detail the whole way. There are battles as the, the family tries to make it back to the house. They battle krites along the way. There's one part where krites are chasing them, but then they manage to get behind. There's like a waist-high picket fence that the krites get stuck behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, just, they're just banging on the picket fence. Um, then there are also battles inside the house. Uh, the family gets in there, and the krites attack them. They fight them uh, in various ways. And yes, there is a scene with a with a critter in the toilet. So that's a milestone achieved. Absolutely. Yeah. They really seem to just spare no part of this house. They're like, have we had a crite attack in the uh, gift wrapping room? No. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. We have to cover every room in this house. There's also just random scenes of the bounty hunters, you know, roaming around and going to various places. They go to church uh, and they like accidentally back their car. They, They steal a police car once they arrive. Uh, it's the deputy. <laughs> they drive it car. backwards. Yeah. Yeah. They, and they drive it backwards because they don't know they're not from Earth. They don't know how you're supposed to drive. So they're driving it in reverse everywhere. Uh, and they like back it through the uh, I don't know what you call it, like the porch of a church while church mm-hmm. is in session. And the reverend is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they, then they go into the church and the and one of the uh, bounty hunter that had not transformed into Johnny Steele turns into the reverend from the church. Yeah. He'd previously taken on the form of the dead de- oh. uh, deputy. Yes, so he right. looked like a zombie previously. Uh, this is the this is the non Johnny Steele, the non UG bounty hunter who can't make up his mind. Right. Who uh, who keeps choosing a new form. Then they go to the bowling alley, and the Reverend One transforms into looking like Charlie, the guy who mm-hmm. who thinks he's been talking to aliens the whole time. Uh, and then eventually they're driving around later and they're, they're going to make it to the house. Uh, so inside the house, Brad, he becomes heroic, the, the son, and he's like, he ventures out. He says, I'm going to go get help. So he goes out and he flags down a police car after being chased by Kreitz, of course, for a while. And it is being driven by the bounty hunters. So this is the scene where we get the use of the word critters. Brad, not knowing that these are Kreitz, says, hey, there are critters attacking my family. You've got to come help. And the bounty hunters do go to investigate though they're very uh, they're not very communicative they just sort of like stare at people most of the time yeah they do a lot of terminatory sort of behaviors but generally for comedic effects i love the scene in the bowling alley the ug character he like palms uh, a bowling ball and then he looks down at the pins and just hurls it straight at the pins and shatters them uh it's it's, like he wanted he wanted everyone there to know that he could beat them all at bowling (laughs) yeah 
That's just part of his strategy for finding out where the Kreitz are. <laughs> yeah, it's it it. This I think it's a it's a specific example of a thing this film does really well. Like it's clearly drawing on these various obvious mainstream sci-fi um, uh, influences, but manages to figure out a way to uh, reweave them into something that feels unique and new. Yeah. So the bounty hunters arrive at the house on the Brown family farm, and they start scouring it for krites. They uh, they like blow up one of the krites in a toilet uh, with with their like laser blasters. Meanwhile, Im- Emmett Walsh arrives and is generally not very helpful. He's like shooting at rolling fur balls and missing, and then he gets thrown out a window. Mm-hmm. Is this the the part? Uh, I may be getting ahead of us, but there's a, a great scene where we get some subtitles for the Kreitz. Yes. And, uh, and they're like, they have weapons. And then the other one says the F word. And it's, it's, uh, and I laughed. Well, I think one of them says uh, they have weapons and the other one says, so what? And then the one that said they had weapons gets blasted by <laughs> the, uh, That's it. And, the, and then the other one just says the F word. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tremendous. But it says the F word and it's in the Krite language. Yes. And then the subtitles tell us what he's saying. Uh, so I thought that was legitimately funny. Now, somewhere along here, one of the Krites becomes enormous, like it grows mm-hmm. up and becomes bear-sized, and uh, like Brad sees it grow by watching its shadow in the light of the moon while he's running to get help. Uh, and then coming to the final showdown, April, the, the sister, is knocked unconscious with a poison quill and kidnapped by the big Krite. Mega Krite mm-hmm. is like dragging her back to the spaceship. Uh, I guess for, a, I don't know, in-flight snack, probably. And the remaining handful of Krites are getting ready to escape. They're, they're like, getting the ship, you know, uh, the, pulling up the landing gear and all that. So in the end, Brad has to save his sister, even though they've been fighting the whole time, along with the help of Charlie, the mechanic. So Brad infiltrates the alien ship, pulls April out, and then throws his giant homemade firecracker inside the, the spaceship. Uh, and then Charlie also helps by igniting the fuse of the firecracker by throwing a Molotov cocktail inside the closing door of the spaceship. And then the Krites, out of just pure spite... <laughs> As they're flying away, shoot a laser beam and blow up the family's house. Uh, but uh, then, the, of course, the fuse on the firecracker burns through and their ship explodes. So finally, the Krites are, are defeated, uh, not, not just by the bounty hunters, but by Brad and Charlie. So Earthlings, you know, unassuming Earthlings uh, to the rescue. Uh, and I guess because Brad has proved his his worthiness, the bounty the alien bounty hunters leave him with a sort of communicator device. It's like a little radio contact thing. And then upon their departure, they somehow use the magic power of their <laughs> ship to reverse footage, reassemble the family's house after we saw it like nearly atomized, just blown to toothpicks. Yeah. They have the technology to do this, and yet to kill a Krite, they have to manually hunt it down and shoot it with some sort of a space shotgun. Maybe that's just how it is. I don't know. But so now the family has their house back. All members of the family are safe. Uh, of course, Billy Zane is is no longer with us, but uh, the family is all all right, and that seems to go with like the feel-good vibes at the end of the movie. Everybody in the family is okay. But we do get a final stinger, which is the camera sort of like dollies into the chicken coop, and we see these leathery-looking studded black eggs in there. Mm. And they're in the chicken coop, which I started laughing at because I was like, does this mean the family is going to like just use them like eggs, like make an omelet? I would hope not. The, that would that would prevent the sequel from taking place, I assume. 
So upon reflection, I noticed what I thought was a kind of interesting theme in this film. I didn't notice while I was watching, but thinking back on it, there are many acts of spite in the movie. Like there are multiple times when someone just sort of casually does injury to some other party as they are leaving a scene. Like the brother and sister do it to each other early on. The Kreitz do it to the farm while escaping. They're they're getting out. They're leaving this planet, but they're just like, eh, to heck with you. They just blow up the house. Uh, and I don't know what to make of that, but it's there in the subtext, uh, though in, in all cases, the wounds caused by spite are healed at the end of the film. Yeah, they're just spiteful little creatures. They're hungry and they're hateful. Uh, and you never want them to show up on your planet. But if you do, you need to take care of them quickly. And, uh, and they, they, everyone managed to pull this off, or so it would seem. Another thing that I think is interesting, we, we sort of talked about this earlier, but it's a misimpression I had about them, which is I thought of the Kreitz before I watched this movie as just animalistic eating machines. But that's mm -hmm. not what they are. They have sentience. Like, they talk to each other in their different language, subtitled. They work machines. They fly spaceships. Does this make them different from most other movie monsters? I was thinking that actually most of the creatures in the various Gromlins movies are able to like work machines and communicate and coordinate with one another, whether verbally or non-verbally. That's sort of part of the Gromlin thing, that they're not just mindless, roaring, you know, chompers, but they have intention behind their behavior, usually malevolent intention, even if the, that intention is rather just sort of like crude impulses, like they, they have plans and they enact them. Does this inform something about the appeal of the Gromlin subgenre? Yeah, that they're schemers, that they're, um, you know, what they lack in size and perhaps even in like pure visual threat, because generally speaking, they're not the size of bears, uh, but they have they have plans. They have schemes. They're tricky. Um, they're they're little they're little devils. They're little demons working their mischief in the world. Getting into the chicken coop, knocking over the fence, eating your Billy Zane boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> causing all kinds of mischief. <sighs> uh, well, I think that's all I've got to say about Critters, but I, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a very enjoyable film that holds up really well. Uh, so if you haven't seen it and you're looking for just a, a pretty, pretty harmless but fun and at times uh, uh, funny uh, creature feature, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with Gromlins. I mean, I'm sorry, you, I don't think you can go wrong. You can go wrong with Gromlins in general. I don't think you can go wrong with Critters 1, though. Fun movie. All right, we'll go ahead and close it there. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on Critters or the Critters franchise, Gromlins movies in general, write in. We would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. And if you want to see a complete list of those movies that we've talked about in Weird House Cinema, you can go to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. You'll find us on there as Weird House. And yeah, there'll be a list of all the movies we've covered. Also, if you're on Instagram, go to STBYM Podcast. That's uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind's account. And our social media team has been putting up uh, little video features for these episodes that have some of the trailer footage. So uh, we always feature the trailer audio if we can find it uh, for the movies we talk about here. But it's also nice to, to check in on the visuals as well. 
Oh, yes. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <laughs>